All right, great to see each and every one of you here this morning. Thank you for being here. You know, we don't take it lightly when you come to the house to spend some time with us. Uh, we know you could be a thousand different places. There are a million different excuses as to not to be here, but we're so glad that you chose to be here. We're honored uh, that you are here today, and I pray uh, that you've already got something out of this morning, and if you haven't so far, that you will before you leave. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. We just thank you for who it is that you are. We just lift up your name. We give you praise, and we give you glory. We adore you in this house, and we thank you for this house, Lord God. We thank you for our senior pastor and his family, and we just pray blessings upon them on their vacation, Lord God. We pray that you would renew them, refresh them, have them come back just with a, a renewed vigor, even more desire than they display already, just to serve you in this house and to lead us in this house. We just pray blessings upon them. And Lord, I just pray as always that you would use me this morning. I pray every word from my mouth is yours and not mine. I pray that people here would have their lives changed by your word, Father God, that their minds and hearts would be open to that change, Lord God, and they would leave here different to how they arrived. We adore you in this place, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, good morning, as I say. It's great to be here. Absolute honor and privilege, as always, to be behind the pulpit, especially so this morning, because I get the privilege of kicking off a brand new series. We always get very excited about the series as they actually come in. This one uh, is going to be called Mind the Gap, Mind the Gap, and that will become clear to you as to why uh, that we're calling the series that, what the inspiration behind that is. It really comes from uh, the, Lon- the London Underground. Anybody here been to London? Don't raise your hands, Pastor Alan and Miss Anne. They did the first service. Anybody who's not English who has been to London before? Oh, we've got half a hand. Half- Thanks, Molly. Don't be shy. Come on. There you go. All right, so Molly has been uh, to London. All right, now you're going to recognize this behind me, uh, even if you haven't actually been there. That symbol behind me is called the Roundel. It's actually a patented logo. It's on uh, every single entrance to the London Underground uh, Railway Network. And the difference between that and what is actually there is, and the white letters will actually display whatever station it's at. So if it's Piccadilly, it will say Piccadilly. All right, if it's Oxford Street, it will say Oxford Street. And these are all on the entrances to the doors on the different streets as you're walking past. So you know where the entrance to the underground is. You walk through the door, and then you will go down, down, and down, uh, underground, the clue is in the name. Um, so you'll actually be going down various degrees of depth depending on which station you are traveling from. All right, so as I said, that's called the roundel. It's there as a symbol to signify that the underground is there. And here is a map of the London underground. This um, is supposed to be the most simplistic way they could actually display the London Underground. Um, if you are going to go to London, please take this on board right now. Do not be frightened to ask somebody for help when you get to the Underground because there's nothing worse uh, than being... Well, there is something worse than being lost. Uh, that's being lost 150 feet underground. You don't want to be lost down there. Um, so this map, as I said, it's basically uh, every single circle. It's not an eye test, so I don't expect you to be able to read these words. But the circle, every circle that's on there is a different station. 
And you can travel underground through London uh, from one place to another. Been around since the 1800s, okay? I'm going to give you, uh, for all you nerds out there, some real quick um, fun facts about the London Underground, okay? Firstly, if you took all of the track on the underground system and you laid it end to end, it would measure 250 miles long. That's all the track that's on there underneath. The shortest distance between two adjacent stations on the underground network is only 260 metres, so it's about 850 feet. And that tube journey is between Leicester Square and Covent Garden. You may have heard of those on TV programmes or on movies or what have you. All right, and that's, as I said, the journey takes 20 seconds. So you get on the train, and before you've got time to sit down, you're standing up again, and you're off of the track. But it only takes 20 seconds, but that costs around about $8, uh, and it's probably the most expensive single fare uh, journey, uh, well, maybe on the planet, I don't know, but definitely on the London Underground, uh, 8 bucks for 20 seconds of travel. And yet it still remains one of the most popular journeys uh, with tourists which is probably why it costs $8, um, because you know how it goes. All right, there, another fun fact. Over 47 million litres of water are pumped out of the tube system each day. That's enough to fill uh, a normal swimming pool at 75 feet by 30 feet to fill that every 15 minutes. The deepest station is Hampstead, which is on the northern line, uh, and that runs down to 191 feet below the surface, okay? And then the last fun fact for you is this. Trains on the underground travel a total of 48.2 million miles every year. Amazing. I thought so, anyway. All right, so basically that's some fun facts for you about the London Underground. And the reason I'm going through that is just to give you some background, really, and just to set the scene uh, for the message for you today. So where does Mind the Gap come from? Where is Mind the Gap? Well, this is all interconnected, again, with the London Underground. And again, I'm going to be using this, as I said, uh, as a a basis, a foundation for my message today. Well, each time a train pulls up into a station, you're standing on the platform, you're waiting for your train to come along to travel uh, from Leicester Square to Piccadilly, and you're waiting for the train to turn up. The train will come along, I say this at the platform, that the train will pull in, it will stop, the doors will open, and then uh, the, the voice comes over the loudspeaker that says, Mind the gap. Stand clear of the doors, please. Mind the gap. And that will run out on every single station, every time any train stops. Okay, Mind the gap. What's the idea behind that? Well, it's a warning to everybody to be aware that there's a gap between the train and the platform that we obviously don't want you to fall in. So they're just making you aware that that gap is there. Now, the gap will vary station to station, train to train. It can be uh, just an inch of a gap. It could be a little bit more of that. And you're not going to fall down between the, the train. But we don't obviously want anybody to trap their foot in there in any way. Now, here's the thing. Person after person will go on the train, off the train, on the train, off the train. And there are obviously people that commute to work and travel around London on a regular basis. And yet they are being continually reminded, mind the gap. Why? Because, you know, when we're going about our day-to-day business and you're getting on train, off a train, on a train, off a train, on a train, off a train, you're going to forget and not think about the fact that there is a gap there. So this man comes over to speakers and says, mind the gap. What does that have to do with a message series at church, you might ask? Well, during the month of March, what we're going to be doing is looking at various gaps that we have in our lives. Gaps between what our life looks like and what we should be striving for our lives to look like. 
We're going to highlight a few different areas of our lives and see how we can recognize where those gaps are. Because again, we're going about our day-to-day business and it's very easy for us to miss those gaps, not see those gaps. Or if we do know the gaps are there, forget that the gaps are there. And those gaps might be dangerous. If we're supposed to be doing one thing, but we're doing it, there's a gap and we're doing something else instead that could be dangerous for us. So we're going to be looking at that, we're going to be highlighting the gaps, and we're going to be looking at how we can best navigate our way through them. Now, I'm going to be talking in general terms today about a major gap that you might have in your life. And as the series progresses, we'll be looking at more specific things that we often have gaps in. So this month, think of us as that voice over the loudspeakers on a London underground platform. Think of us from the pulpit. What we're saying to you is, mind the gap. We're going to be doing our best to remind you that you need to be careful and aware of your life and gaps that may be in there. So I'm going to kick off today. uh, Today's message, it's going to be called from here to there. From here to there. Well, from where to where. Well, I'm going to talk today about the gap between the here of the life that you are living now and the there of the life that God wants you to be walking in. The here of where we are today compared to the there of God's unique purpose for your life. So that's the there that God wants you to be dwelling in, to be living in, and to be fulfilling. And this is the here where many of us are right now. Now, I'm not going to make any assumptions about you as an individual. But I am going to make some assumptions about you as a group of people, if that's okay. I'm actually going to make those assumptions if it's not okay, because I've got the mic. But I'm not going to make any assumptions about you as an individual. As an individual right now, you may be living your life 100% within God's will. In 100% obedience to God, 100% of the time. And fulfilling 100% of God's purpose that God wants you to be fulfilling right now. But I know 100% that that doesn't apply to 100% of you in this room. There are many of you right now who are living a life which is fulfilling way less than God wants your life to be fulfilling. You're making way less impact on others than God wants you to be making. And you're basically not living out your God-given purpose. If that's you, don't feel bad. Because the truth is the majority of the people here today either feel the same way today or they've felt the same way in the past. Don't be ashamed of where you're at or the reason that you are there, or reasons that you are there. Having a gap between where you are and where you should be is something which is common today and has always been common. So my aim today is to have you look at yourself and where you're at right now in regards to your walk as a Christian, to look at where God desires you to be, and it's up to you, for you to decide whether or not there is a gap between the two. It's not for me to decide on your life. It's for you to ask yourself honest questions and decide whether you are here or you are there. It's you that needs to decide that, not me. So what does here look like? If it's not where we're supposed to be right now, what does it look like here? Well, the details are going to be different for each and every one of us. It's going to be entirely unique for everybody. But there are some things that will apply to everyone who is living here and not there. 
I just said that having the gap between the life you are living and the life God desires for you has always been a common thing. Look at what Paul wrote in one of his letters to the Corinthian church. He says this, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. We are not called to live small. We are not called to love small. We are not called to impact small. We are called to live, love, and impact big, expansively. And maybe you're living your life that way right now, but maybe you're not. You, as I said, are the best judge outside of God as to whether or not you are living out God's plan for your life right now, or if you're living life small. But maybe you don't know. Maybe you're unsure. Well, you need to decide that before anything else. You need to decide whether you are living here or whether you are living there. You need to decide which one of those it is because if you're living there, all well and good. But if you're living here and don't realize it, then you're obviously in the wrong place. I've got some questions for you to ask for yourself. And this is not me asking you these questions. I'll stress that again. So please, don't answer them out loud. These questions are for you to ask yourself and to answer to yourself. And this is for you to assess where it is that you're at right now and whether there is a gap that you need to mind. So the first question I want to ask you to ask yourself is this. Am I living my life in a small way? Now, there's every chance that you are not doing nothing with your life for the kingdom. The likelihood is that you are an encouragement to others sometimes, that you do things for people sometimes. But I'm asking you to be honest with yourself, nobody else, just you. Are you living your life smaller than it should be being lived? Let me phrase the question again another way. Could you be making more impact? Are there things that you could be doing to serve God that you're not doing? Let me give you a really good indicator of whether or not you are living your life smaller than you should be. Ask yourself, is everything that you are taking part in comfortable for you without you ever being stretched? Are you making every decision in your life without praying about it and seeking godly counsel? Is your life ticking along nicely according to what you have decided to do with your life? Because if that's the case, you are living according to your plan for your life and not God's plan for your life. So I can give you some guidance as to whether you are living your life smaller than you should be. And that guidance is, yes, you are living your life smaller than you should be. Let me show you how I know that to be true. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are higher than your ways. God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God's plan for your life is bigger than your plan for it. So if you are living to your plan, you are living your life smaller than you should be. 
Next question to ask yourself to see if you are here or there is this. Am I an active Christian? An active Christian. Let me make something totally clear to you. I'm not asking you to ask yourself if you are a Christian. The question here is not about whether or not you're saved. It's what you're doing now you have been saved. They are two different things entirely. Romans 10.9 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you have prayed the sinner's prayer or something like it, from the heart, and you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sins, you are a Christian. You are saved. You are going to heaven. Whether or not you would consider yourself to be active or not is not a qualifier as to your status as a Christian. But it is a qualifier as to your status as an active Christian. If there's no fruit from your life as a Christian, if there is nothing that could be recognized as good works in your life, then you are here. You are here. You are saved, providing you fulfill Romans 10.9, but you are not where you need to be in regards to fulfilling your purpose. So one more question for you to ask yourself. Who do I serve? Do you serve God or do you serve something or someone else? Again, ask that question to yourself and answer honestly. How much of your time is spent serving God in some form or another? What percentage of your week is spent for the benefit of God's kingdom? Again, I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you to ask you that. In the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua has gathered all the people together and starts speaking to them. He opens up with the line, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And God then, through Joshua, he lists all the things that God has done for the children of Israel. He says that long ago, your fathers lived across the river and worshipped other gods. But I took Abraham, and I gave him the family and lineage I promised him. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I parted the Red Sea for them and brought you to the land that I promised you and to Jericho. Every enemy that came against you on the way, I gave you. I gave you the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I gave them into your hand. And then God finishes off by saying this to them. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So then Joshua says this to his people, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. He goes on and he challenges them this way. He says, but if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So what about you? Who are you serving? You know, I read the first 13 verses of this chapter where God is listing off to the Israelites all he's done them, all he's done for them. 
And I've read it before, so I know what was coming next. And I knew that Joshua was going to challenge. And it's easy for us to dwell on that powerful scripture where he says, you know, as for me. But I read those 13 verses where he's listing off to the children of Israel all that he's done. And I imagined God having the same conversation with me. God could say to me, he could say, Pete, For the first 40 years of your life, your heart was hard toward me. You chose your own path and followed it without regard for me or most of the people in your life. You made bad decision after bad decision. Yet, I had my hand upon you through it all. You broke yourself and relationships I gave you. You abused your body and your eyes and your mind. You'd had a life of debauchery and sexual immorality. You worshipped material things and chased anything that you believed would give you pleasure and happiness. And yet, I chose you. I healed you of depression and insomnia. I healed you from being bipolar. I broke your addiction to pornography and your desire to drink every day. I brought you four and a half thousand miles to a new life that I have blessed you with. A wife who loves and cherishes you. Children who respect you and trust you. I gave you a position of responsibility and influence and guided you and shaped you through every moment of all of that. You live a life that is blessed beyond measure and it all came from me. Now I can hear God speaking those words to me. But think about this. If God did that for you, if he spoke to you, if he listed off all that he had done for you, Despite what you have done, despite who it is that you are, who it is that you have been, what things would he be able to list off for you? What things would he be able to tell you he had done for you? Here's my challenge to you. Who will you serve? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you've asked yourself those three questions I gave you. And you should have a clear idea now of where it is that you're living your life out. Are you living your life out here? Or are you living your life out there? You should have a clear idea. So if you are here, what does there look like? Where is it that we're supposed to be living out our lives? How is it that we're supposed to be living out our lives? Let me show you three verses of Scripture that do a wonderful job of summarizing what God has done for us and what we need to be doing in response to it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things, the good things he planned for us long ago. The English Standard Version says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in a nutshell, our there is where God created us to be. Our there is doing the good things he planned for us long ago. Our there is us being an active Christian. Our Christianity has to be something displayed, not kept to ourselves. Our faith in Christ needs to be displayed. That faith needs to be active. That faith needs to be alive. 
That faith needs to be doing. And without doing, it's not alive. Look at this. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James here is talking about your faith, not you. Without works, your faith is dead. You're not dead. Your faith is dead. Your faith should be alive. And things that are alive bear fruit. Your faith should make a difference, not just to you, but it should have an impact on others. People around you should benefit from your faith. Let me say it this way. Your faith should make a difference. Is it? Is your faith making a difference? Let me ask you it this way. If I took your faith away from you today, would the people around you notice any difference? Would they? So what else does, looks different about there compared to here? Well, the way that you love people is different. Remember, we covered this in detail a couple of weeks ago, and I challenged you at that point to love others the way that Jesus loves us. Remember his commandment and what he says about it. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have a love for one another. So this love is going to display itself in many different ways, but it's going to be an indicator to those around you that you are a Christian. Christ says that. It's a display that you are my disciples. So when we are there and we are not here, we're consistently loving others the way that Jesus loved, indiscriminately, unconditionally, sacrificially, and forgivingly. So the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to defining the there that God wants us to be living in, it's a tough one to put across clearly and concisely. It's very hard to describe regarding what it looks like because it looks different to each individual. But when we are there, there's a sense of being in God's will. When you are there, you will have a sense that you are fulfilling God's purpose in your life. To any degree, if you are in his will, you will sense it. You will feel it. Because God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. And we touched on this earlier in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The plan that God has for your life, he had for your life before he gave you your life. He had the plan before he had you. You didn't come along and then God looks at you and said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this one? That's not how it went. God's plan was already there when you came along. Your purpose was here before you were here. So what else do we know about God's plan for you? We know that he knows it. He knows the plan. God is not winging it and making it up as he goes along. He's not winging it, you know, as you're changing it and chopping it. And he's not just bending and changing his plan to fit in with what you think the plan is supposed to look like. He has the plan. He has the plan. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 
Many of us know this scripture, and many of us can quote this scripture. We can even speak it into other people's lives that we believe it for, and yet we don't always accept it for ourselves. So before I read it to you, I want you to know that it applies to you. Just as much as it applies to me or the person sat next to you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has a plan for you. But it's not just a plan for your future. It's a plan for your today. And get this, it was a plan for your yesterday. The start date of the purpose for your life on this earth was the day that you were born. The end date for your purpose on this earth is the day that you will die. How much you fulfill your purpose on this earth between those two dates is completely up to you. You know, Billy Graham passed recently. Obviously, everybody in here is aware of that. And he has been given so much honor, rightly so. Every single person who has given a eulogy and stepped, stepped up at his funeral spoke of this man. An incredible, incredible man of God. But I thought about this. He died at 99 years of age. And, and, and again, being honored by so many people because of what it is that he achieved. But Billy Graham did not. He was a unique man. But he did not speak uniquely. He read from the same Bible that I've got, the same Bible that you've got. There was not a word about Christ that he spoke that hasn't been spoken a thousand times before and since by preachers across the land. He didn't speak anything unique. So what it was it that was different about Billy Graham? It was this. He lived out his purpose every single second of every moment of every day of his life. He's now in heaven and got there, and there's no question at all. You know what? If he didn't hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, we are all in trouble. So he had those words expressed to him. Because what he did was take his life and milk 100% of the purpose that he had on his life out of it. Every single moment. How will people speak about you at your funeral? Will they be able to say the same thing? That you lived with purpose, you fulfilled God's purpose. That you left nothing out there undone that you should have done. All right, so we know there's a here, we know there's a there. And we also know how many of us are still here when we shouldn't be. So what is it that's keeping us here? Why are we here and why are we not already traveled there? Well, we're going to look quickly at what I think are the four main reasons that many of us are not living the life that God desires us to. Four key things that keep us here when we need to be there. Number one, fear. Fear. Fear can be defined as lack of faith. Not absence of faith. I believe it's absolutely possible to have faith and fear present at the same time but in a proportion that comes and totals 100%. What do I mean by that? I believe it's impossible to have 100% faith in a situation and 100% fear in a situation. But I do think you can have 25% faith and 75% fear. 
or 75% faith and 25% fear. So if we have fear or nervousness or anxiety about something, it doesn't mean that we have no faith. It simply means that we don't have as much faith about it as we could have, maybe even should have, dependent on what it is that we're talking about. But there is that proportion of fear there, of fear compared to our faith. And it's going to, it's going to totally determine our action or our inaction. Let me express it to you this way. Before I, every time before I drum, there's a nervousness inside of me. And I, know, and I know every musician and vocalist in our worship team will say the same thing. There's this nervousness inside the pit of your stomach. You can call it fear because that's basically what nervousness is. There's, there's just something about it. We want to obviously just give our all for the glory of God. We want to exalt all of you into praise and worship. But there's a nervousness, there's a fear about it. Does that mean that every person on this stage has no faith? It doesn't mean that at all, let me assure you. Does it mean that we have enough faith? I believe it does because I don't think there's anything wrong with having that, that nervousness about you. Before I preach this message, before I preach any message, there's a nervousness because I want, I'm, I'm fearful that I'm not going to do as good a job as God wants me to do. I'm fearful that I'm going to miss the mark. I'm fearful that I'm not going to be able to touch people's hearts that I'm supposed to be able to touch. So there's a fear. Does that mean I don't have faith? No, I obviously have faith. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here at all, I can assure you. But if I was to give you the mic right now and say, can you go up there and finish my message for me? I, I, I feel that there's a likelihood that there might be slightly more fear than faith. Okay? But not no faith. Not an absence of faith. And if you did come up and do that, then the next time you did it, there would be more faith. And so on and so forth. What is it I'm saying? I'm saying to you that it's possible. It's doable to increase your faith. To increase your faith. And what do we do if we increase faith? We reduce fear. If you are right now 50-50 on a situation, if you have 50% fearfulness about a situation, and yet you know that the Lord has it, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If that's the situation you're in, you know you can work on your faith so that then next week you're 60% faith and 40% fear. And then 70% faith, 30% fear. So if you're in a situation and you find yourself in a life situation and there's something big that you're nervous about and you're afraid of, do not, do not be fearful or embarrassed to come to somebody and say, I'm feeling really nervous right now, can you pray for me? Because if I see that in you, if I know that you're stepping out and doing something which should make you nervous, that should stretch you, we spoke about it earlier, if you're in your comfort zone 100% of the time, you're here. If you are there, you better believe that God is going to stretch you sometimes. So if you have that fear, if you have something coming up that's big, that you should be nervous about, and I come up to you and I say, how are you feeling? I don't want to hear, oh, praise God to the glory of God. I'm super awesome, fantastic, fabulous. Now, you know what? I've never woke up more confident in my life about anything. Because why? Because God has not given me a spirit of fear. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. But he's given you the ability to have that nervousness. He's given you the ability to be fearful and afraid. Why would God give me the ability to be fearful and afraid? Because if I'm not afraid and I'm not fearful about anything at all that goes on in my life, why do I need God? Why do I need to lean on God if I've got it all sorted out myself? So we can work on our faith. We can build our faith. We can increase our faith. If we have more fear than faith, 
We're going to go in the wrong direction. So we need to work and get our faith more than our fear. But when it comes to God's plan, what is it that holds us here? Well, there's several things that we can be afraid of, but it's normally a fear that comes with the fear of the unknown. Because as we've established, we will never know the whole of God's plan. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. So by definition, we aren't going to be able to wrap our heads around the thing that God had in mind for us. So there's obviously always going to be something about God's plan that's unknown. And that makes us fearful. That makes us afraid. There's a fear of what we may have to do. There's a fear of what God's plan may mean for our lives. Lots of mays, lots of unknowns. But here's the great news. As I said, we can increase our faith about God's plan and decrease our fear without changing the amount of God's plan that we know. We don't need more, of, more knowledge of what God's plan is in order that we decrease our fear. What do we need? We need trust. We need to trust God. Why? Because trust brings faith. Trust brings faith. I have a massive amount of faith in the fact that if my wife says something to me that she's going to do it, that she will do it. Why? Because I trust her. And I know the feeling is mutual. It doesn't mean she's not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to make mistakes. But I trust her. And I have faith in what it is that she says to me. If you're a complete stranger to me and you tell me that you are going to do something, then I'm going to stand back and I'm going to watch. And I'm going to see if you do that. And if you do that, that you tell me you're going to do, you know what? I trust you a bit more than I did before. And so on and so forth. We increase trust, and by increasing trust, we increase faith. So what else keeps us here? Well, the thought that there'll be too much sacrifice. I'm going to have to give up too much here. I'm happy here. I don't want to be there. Because if I go there, I'm going to have to give up what's here. We might not be fearful of what it is that we're going to have to do, but we might be afraid of what we have to give up and sacrifice. Maybe we have a degree of comfort in our lifestyle that we don't want to give up for anybody, even God. Maybe we associate living out God's will in our lives with being called out into the mission field. You know, there are people who will basically, you know, they'll be offered an opportunity to to serve on the welcome team. And they might think, you know what, well, uh, I I could do that. I could could open the door. I don't know, one, one Sunday a month, I could stand on the door and open up and wave people in and tell them, welcome home. I could do that. But if I do that, then that means probably that between the first and second service, Pastor Allen is going to come to me and say that he's going on a mission for six months in outer Mongolia and he wants me to come with him. So I'm not going to volunteer for the welcome team. Because we have this thing in our minds that God's mission for us is going to be way too big, way too much sacrifice. I'm going to have to sacrifice. You know, when we talk about surrendering our lives to the Lord, so many times that's misunderstood. People think they have to give up everything, cancel out every, you know, divorce their, their spouse, give up the kids, sell the kids. If you can get any money for them, let me know where you can do that. So <clears throat> give, up the, give up every aspect of that, surrender their lives, give up everything, give up way of everything control. The idea of surrendering your life is not to sacrifice everything. It's to sacrifice what doesn't need to be there. And by surrendering our life to God, what we're doing is we're surrendering to his plan. What I'm giving up is my plan for my life. 
and walking and surrendering to his plan for my life. So we associate things and and a massive amount of sacrifice. What it is that we're going to have to give about the comfortable life that we're living right now. Or maybe we know that committing to God's plan would mean that we're going to have to give up that sin that we are involved with right now. That thing that we think isn't harming anybody, but we know it's wrong. Well, firstly, if it's sin, it's hurting you, even if it's not hurting anybody else. And secondly, if it's keeping you from stepping into God's plan for your life, then it's definitely hurting you. Let me tell you this, and I mean this with all sincerity. Living your life in God's will and purpose for your life will always give you more than it takes away. Always it will give you more than it takes away. I promise you that. So, another reason why we're still here. We're still here because we believe that we're not qualified. You know, there tends to be three basic kinds of people. Those that think they are not good enough for anything. Those that think they are too good for anything. And those that have read enough of the Bible to know that they shouldn't think either of the first two things. What do I mean? Well, if you've read enough of the Bible, you know that there is story after story after story of people that were totally unqualified on paper to fulfill God's plan that they were called to do. That very thing they, they, they were called to do, they were completely unqualified for. But God called them to do those things. Moses is a prime example. Moses, he's 80 years years old at this point. He's he's just spent 40 years in the desert. He spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's home. He sees the guy getting murdered. He murders the guy. He runs away from Pharaoh's armies. He spends 40 years in the deserts and he's walking along, minding his own business, tending his sheep, walks past a bush, and there's the fire. And God says, take your sandals off, mate, because you're on holy ground. And God speaks to him directly. Gives him and says, I I want you to go and save my children. So what does Moses say? He doesn't say, yes, Lord, whatever you ask. He says, whoa, hang on a second. No, not me, me. you've got the wrong guy. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it five times in that chapter, five times. God says, no, Moses, I'm talking, no, God, you can't, no, Moses, really. No, God, I can't, seriously? He's just talking back and forth, and five times Moses is saying, I'm unqualified. I'm unqualified. I'm unqualified. I'm unqualified. I'm unqualified. And on paper, as I said, he is unqualified. But God calls him to go and do that job. You know, I used to be in sales management back in England, and I used to be the guy that ran um, an area manager for a company. And so I was responsible for the hiring and firing of people on the, on the team. And whenever we had a, a position come up, we would advertise the position. And you know how it goes. You get lots of applicants for a position. And I might have a pile of 125, 150 names and, and, and resumes on my desk. Now, how many people know how long it takes to interview 125 people? Okay, as a sales manager, you don't have time to interview 125 people. So I'm going to cut the list down some way. So how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to get the pile of paper, and I'm going to look at what? Their qualifications. And I'm going to go through, and I'm going to say, right, okay, uh, not qualified, not qualified, not qualified, qualified, not qualified, not qualified, not qualified, not qualified, qualified. And I'm going to cut those, that pile down. So I've got a short list then of the people that I consider to be qualified for what it is that I need them to do. Now, God's there. 
with a pile of 125 resumes. And he's looking at it. Qualified, 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 qualified. Why? Because God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And you've heard it said a thousand times, that phrase. And many people have heard it, but hearing something and knowing it are two completely different things. Listen to that one more time. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. God is not waiting for you to get better before he uses you. He is waiting for you to realize that he wants to use you so you can get better. That's what God has in store for you. He will qualify you through whatever it is that he wants you to do. So why are we still here? Well, also, we believe that we are disqualified. Unqualified and disqualified are two different things. It's one thing to think that we're not good enough to do something, but it's another to think that we are too bad to do anything. Your past and who you were, maybe your present and who it is that you still are, can have you think that God couldn't use you because of the mistakes and the decisions that you've made. The enemy will have you thinking and dwelling on those things for as long as you allow those things to be a reason to not surrender your life to God. Those things are the very reason that you should be surrendering to God. Nothing that you have done in your past will disqualify you from God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and as importantly, from him using you for good and for his glory. Look at this in the book of Romans. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. And Paul the Apostle is an amazing example of this. He's a passionate and self-confessed, zealous persecutor of Christians. And then he's converted into a key and impactful man in the early church. He was chosen because of how bad he was. How bad he was is what determined God selecting him and choosing him. Why? Well, what a powerful example of God's redemption. An incredible example of how God does not care what you have in your past when it comes to using you in your future. That's what Paul did. Nothing that you have done in your life compares to what Paul did in the first part of his life. And yet God took him, saved him, and used him like no man on the planet has ever been used since. So, we've established where the here is and where the there is. We've established what the here looks like, what the, th- the, what the there looks like. So if I'm here, how do I get there? First step is this. Start your journey. Start your journey. You've probably heard this a thousand times before as well. It's a quote from Lao Tzu who says, every journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And that's a powerful thought. You've got a thousand miles to walk. It's going to take a single step to, to, to begin that journey. And it's powerful. But it's even more powerful when you understand that he never actually said a journey of a thousand miles. What he actually said was a journey of a thousand li, L-I. And that's actually a Chinese measurement. And one li is equivalent to 360 miles. So what he actually said was, a journey of 360,000 miles starts 
with one step. Well, what's my point? My point is this. It doesn't make any difference how big God's plan and journey for your life actually is. It's going to take you stepping out with your first step to begin it. It doesn't matter how big it is. If you don't take that first step, then you're going nowhere. Imagine yourself if you would. You're on the London Underground. You've gone down there. You want to travel from Leicester Square through to Oxford Street. You're on the platform and you're waiting for the train to come along. The train pulls up, slows down, comes to a stop. The doors open. The voice comes over the loudspeakers. Mind the gap. Now, how do you take, or how do you start your journey? You take one step onto the train. One step. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Get off the platform. Get on the train. Get off the platform and get on the train. That's where your journey starts. What else do you need to do to come from here to there? Trust God. Trust God. Deciding to trust God should be a one-time decision. And it really is that. It's a decision. You have to choose. It's you making your mind up that you will trust God completely. And the word completely is kind of redundant because if you trust somebody, you do trust them completely. You can't half trust somebody. Am I right? You can't half, you either trust someone or you don't trust somebody. You can't half trust them. And if there's someone in your life that you don't trust, there's probably a reason for that. They may or may not have done something to you something bad to you. They may have let you down at some point in time. And that's why you don't trust them. That may even be the reason that you don't trust anybody else because this person did something to you and they let you down. Let me assure you of this. God has never done anything to you and God will never let you down. So I don't care who has done what to you in your life. Trust them if you wish. Trust somebody else if you wish. But don't for a second not trust God because of what a person has done to you in your life. Your God, my God, is worthy of our trust 100%. He will never do anything to you to justify you not trusting him. Conversely, he has done an immense amount for you to trust him. You know, here's, here's how I would, if, if I have a complete stranger come up to me, again, I said to you, I don't necessarily trust them straight away. But if they were then to go and get their son, walk away, kill their son, and come back for me, I'd be inclined to trust them. If they're going to make that sacrifice, that's what God has done for you. God took his son and killed him for you. So you need to trust him. Because if that's the lengths that God is going to go to for you, then you need to be trusting him in every other aspect of your life. Don't, tr- don't fail to trust God when it comes to the plan that he's got for your life. Just because you don't know the full plan that he has. Okay? If, he, if he's got this full plan, you don't know this whole full plan. You don't understand the full plan. You can't see the full plan. But don't let that stop you from trusting him with the whole plan. If you knew all the details, I said this already, you wouldn't have to trust him, would you? So here's what you need to do. Trust him enough to take that first step. 
Get off the platform. Get on the train. So here's that map again. Let's imagine that you're way over here. Up on that green line in the top right-hand corner. The last blue dot right at the end. That's you there on the platform. And what God has got planned for your life is all of this. Or part of all of this. You have no idea where this track is going to take you. And you see over here where the green line meets the red on this far left-hand side here? That's the destination that God has got planned for you. But you don't know that. You don't know that that's where God is taking you. You're there. God is going to take you here to that final destination. This is you today. That's the day that you'll draw your last breath. And God has got this journey mapped out between the here and the there for your life. Between that station and that station. But you don't know all of that. You don't know the last... Put your hand up if you know what day you're going to dial. That's no one. You don't know where that is. But just because you don't know where that is or how long the journey is going to take, it doesn't mean that you should spend the rest of your life standing on that platform. You need to take the first step. Get on the train. He's going to teach you and guide you through every step that you take. You're going to come to another station. The train's going to stop. The doors are going to open. The voice over the loudspeaker is going to say, mind the gap. And you have the choice as to whether to get off the train or stay on the train. And you're going to be tempted sometimes to get off the train because you, you know, you've heard of Madame Tussauds, the wax museum, and this is your stop for that, and you want to go there. But God might not want you to get off the train there. God might want to keep you on the train to continue your journey. But then the next step comes along and you sense inside of you that you need to step off the train, get onto a connecting line and go on a journey somewhere else. What is it I'm saying? I'm saying you might not know until you get there and the doors open and the train is stopped that you're supposed to get off and go somewhere else. But you have to be getting there to that station in the first place for it to be a part of your journey. There's a thousand different destinations that you could go to, some that you want to go to. But there's many that God is going to take you to as a part of the overall journey. Here's the thing, though. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows exactly where he will take you, when he will take you, why he will take you, how he will take you, and who he will take you with. Which leads me to the next point about your journey. Don't travel alone. Don't take this journey alone. Take this journey alongside like-minded people who've got your best interests genuinely at heart. Have people with you so that when you do come to a station and the train stops, you don't get off it just because you feel like getting off it. Have people with you who can help you to look at the next stage of the journey and advise you of what you might need to look out for going through this tunnel or that tunnel. Look for people around you that have gone through what you're going through and they've come out of the other side. Don't make big decisions about any part of your life without seeking godly counsel first. And if you're afraid of godly counsel because you think you're going to get told what you don't want to hear, then you really need to seek godly counsel. God created us with relationship in mind, relationship with him and relationship with others. Now, if you haven't done it yet, sign up for Growth Track. Sign up for Growth Track. I'm not plugging Growth Track for the benefit of the church. I'm plugging Growth Track for the benefit of you. 
you are going to discover some things about yourself going through our growth track. You're going to discover how God wired you and the gifts that he gave you. You're going to discover things about your purpose and have the opportunity to take your first step onto that train. You're also going to get connected with other people who are doing the very same thing as you. So get connected. Get connected. Have people with you. Do not do this journey alone. You weren't created to do that. You need people around you. So what's the last thing you need to do from getting here to there? Enjoy the ride. You need to enjoy the ride. Let me remind you of one last time what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about how life should look for us as Christians. He says, dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide, open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you are living them in a small way. I am speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly. Live expansively. Now, doesn't that sound like an exciting way to live life? Doesn't it? This journey that we're on, this journey through life is a challenging one. It's going to have its moments of peace and tranquility. This train journey is going to have moments of breathtaking scenery. It's going to have wonderful experiences and joys beyond belief. It's also going to have unwanted delays, bumpy stretches of track, the occasional wrong turn or a long, dark tunnel. You're going to bump into people that you wish could be a part of your life for longer. And you're occasionally going to be crammed on a hot, smelly carriage, sometimes with too many people, all pressed up way too close in your business for comfort. That's how it's going to be with this journey. God never promises a life without struggles and challenges. He never promises us a trouble-free and perfect journey. But he does promise that the final destination is so worth it all. As Christians, we need to be ever aware of that. That needs to be to the forefront of our minds. We need to understand fully that where we are headed is so much better than the journey itself can offer. But the, the journey is necessary for us to get there. And when you know something's going to be worth it in the end, doesn't that make it so much easier to enjoy on the way? We can get so caught up in our day-to-day challenges and our hurts that we miss all of the blessings along the way. So many good things can be on the other side of those long, dark tunnels. So as Christians, as we take this journey ourselves, we need to decide that we're going to make a positive impact on all of the people who are on the train with us. And every time the train stops at a station and the doors open and we hear the voice saying, mind the gap, that we are doing all we can do to encourage more people to get on our train and travel and take their own journey from here to there. Bow your heads where you're at if you would.